Thank you very much. I am so relieved. I walked in the building, people started to leave, and I thought, boy, that's, not, that's a bad sign. You're taking an awful chance putting a great sinner like me up here in the sanctuary. It's a clear sunny day. I hope we don't get hit by lightning. Lord, save St. John's and his people. You can get me on the way out. Anybody know what this is? This is called a newspaper. Remember, there was a time in our history when people used to get their news from these. Um, that's, of course, no longer the case. Uh, two years ago at the Gridiron Dinner, which is mostly print journalists, um, the governor of Virginia, Terry McAuliffe, said, you printed yesterday's news on paper, and you threw it at people's houses, and you thought that was going to last forever. How's that for a business model? He knew what he was talking about. Uh, I would say, though, uh, if any of you have seen Spotlight, uh, yeah, I see a lot of nodding heads. And if you haven't seen it, you should see it. Uh, the message to me is we cannot afford to let our great newspapers die. We just can't afford it. We have to find a way to save them if we want to save the republic. I feel that, that so strongly about that. Um, actually, I, I started with newspapers. Um, I used to deliver them. Charles Osgood of CBS News says that's where he learned the importance of accuracy in journalism, <laughs> delivering newspapers. You aim for the porch and try to miss the bushes. Um, I had a morning paper route, and uh, unwisely, I used to stop and read the paper on the way, which is not a good business practice because people like to get their papers on time. And it also made me late for school. But once I got there, I was terrific on current events. Uh, many years later, I got into the news business, and that was a trip. It was a long trip. On December 31st, 2014, I, uh, I, uh, after 50 years on the job, I stopped covering news on television. The owner of the company where I'd worked for 10 years, and I had 10 terrific years, uh, Robert Alberton, had decided to sell his broadcast properties and I didn't want to work for the new people, so uh, I decided to take a hike. But 50 years is a pretty good run, I think, especially in our business where uh, survival is, is a measure of success. Uh, but I, I tell you, I had not missed a New Hampshire primary for decades. And, uh, you know, I'd covered them in fair weather and foul. I had rolled into Manchester in blizzards and, and whiteouts, and uh, I loved it. I loved all of it. Uh, the New Hampshire presidential primary is retail politics at its very best, in my opinion. Iowa, too, but the distances are much shorter in New Hampshire, and you can cover candidates uh, more easily. Uh, New Hampshire is where the voters get the chance to look at real, honest-to-God, flesh-and-blood candidates in person instead of on television. And also, the New Hampshire voters are plugged in. They really, they really know what they're talking about. And, and you can ask them questions, even dumb ones, and uh, they give you reasonably intelligent answers. Anyway, last January, I began to feel the experience, you know, like the call of the wild. You know? It was like uh, Jack London's dog, Buck. Woo! Like that. And I was, had this mysterious force was pulling me north. So suddenly on February 2nd, there I was in the wilds of New Hampshire. And... Uh, I found myself at a Hillary Clinton event at the Boys and Girls Club of Greater Derry. Is there a lesser Derry? <laughs> Who knows? Who cares? Anyway, when I saw at the Hillary event, 
and elsewhere confirmed what I had been hearing and reading, namely that uh, there's a lack of enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton in this campaign. Uh, but here's an example. Uh, at the Mall of New Hampshire, I bumped into a 28-year-old, Ashley Shilhammer, who told me that she had voted enthusiastically for Barack Obama twice. Uh, but she said her mother was leaning toward Trump, and her boyfriend was all excited about Bernie Sanders. She was not excited about Bernie. But her lack of enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton bordered on indifference, I think. And yet, just a couple of weeks ago, I saw a, Ga I saw a Gallup poll indicating that Hillary Clinton's supporters are 10% more enthusiastic than Bernie Sanders' supporters, 54% to 44%. Uh, but that was not in Wisconsin, and that was not in Wyoming. Bernie has beaten Hillary seven out of eight. Uh, CNN said eight out of nine, but I think they're wrong. Anyway, in Wisconsin, more than 80% of those under the age of 30 voted for Bernie. By the way, Bernie's going to the Vatican next week. Did you see that? Just days before the uh, New York primary, Bernie's going to take a break from campaigning, and he's going to attend a conference hosted by the Pontifical Academy of Social Sciences. According to the New York Daily News, Bernie's campaign swears on a stack of Bibles the senator's invitation came from a higher power and is not political. Okay, whatever. Anyway, <laughs> it's that kind of a campaign. A New York Times columnist uh, Roger Cohen writes that younger voters are looking for radical candidates who break the mold. Thus, we have Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, who is 74. I remember a time when I was young and carefree in 74. It's a beautiful time in my life. You've heard this line many times before. Uh, but yeah, four years ago, I saw a younger voter swoon over another candidate who broke the mold, Ron Paul. Ron Paul is 80. I'm 78. I'm thinking, you know, if I'm still around in 2020. <laughs> Donald Trump. At an event in Milton, New Hampshire, 39-year-old Linda Lowney told me she likes the way Trump rattles people's cages. I heard a lot of that. She also has a visceral dislike of Ted Cruz. I heard a lot of that, too. Something about Cruz turns her, up, turns her off. Now, the point is, a lot of this campaign is about emotion. It's about feelings. For example, I want to tell you about Steve Schofield. Steve is uh, 71. He's white wears a red uh, Make America Great Again hat and a red Make America Great Again shirt. Steve is angry, but he is not one of the angry, financially stressed, older white Americans we read about. Uh, he's, a, he's a machinist. He's a tool maker by trade. He has a nice pension. He received the pension when the company he had worked for for 20 years was sold, and he got a pension out of the deal, but he also kept his full-time job. So he has the pension. Uh, he, ha he works full-time for the new company, and he collects Social Security. So he said, my life is good. I said, what are you doing here at a Trump rally? He answered me by saying he thinks Barack Obama is the worst president we've ever had. And when you try to nail him down, you can't nail him down. You say, well, you know, we're, unemployment's around 5%, and the uh, stock market looks pretty good, and the automobile industry is thriving, and not interested. And, but like most Americans, he's also fed up with the Congress. But why Donald Trump? Because Donald Trump is not a politician, he told me. Steve claims Trump is saying what most of the Amer American people wish they could say. And here's the key. 
Trump says what I feel, he told me. It's about feelings. Ted Cruz, February 3rd, southern New Hampshire. Cold, miserable, wet, driving, terrible, which of course means nothing to New Hampshire drivers. Their license plate reads, live free or die. <laughs> but, you know, New Hampshire voters show up, regardless of the weather, it doesn't matter. And this day they showed up for Ted Cruz at uh, Roby's General Store in Hookset, New Hampshire, a tiny place. Hook, uh, Cruz's people were handing out these very sophisticated, waterproof, professionally printed signs that says, don't believe the liberal media. Meanwhile, they're jamming television, liberal television news media crews into this little space here, just as many as they could get in. No camera was outside. The crew's supporters are outside in the cold and rain, but the camera people were inside. Now, it's no secret here in Washington that Ted Cruz is the most disliked member of the U.S. Senate. Uh, most hated is what you hear most. At Roby's General Store in New Hampshire, former New Hampshire Senator Bob Smith introduced Ted Cruz. In 2000, Smith ran in his home state in the presidential primary. He ran first as a Republican, no dice, then a member of the taxpayer, did not taxpayer party, that didn't work. Then he ran as an independent, and the voters rejected him every time. Smith said, <clears throat> when you hear that folks in Washington do not like Ted Cruz, who cares? That's a first for me. Nobody likes this guy, but I think you ought to support him anyway. I'd never heard that before. Karen Jubinville, 67-year-old uh, retired massage therapist, likes Cruz a lot. Why? She said once she heard Cruz say he was going to get rid of Obamacare, he was her man. She also likes Cruz on immigration. She says Obama's just opening the doors uh, to this country and we're not safe here anymore. Uh, I love talking to voters. I always have. Uh, there are fellow citizens and uh, I really believe they are deserving our respect and that we are obliged to listen to them carefully regardless of their politics. Well, you want to take white supremacists out of that, that's okay with me. <laughs> uh, my friend Peter Hart has been polling for the Wall Street Journal and NBC News for years, and for years he's been doing political focus groups all over the country, and I'm going to tell you, he is so good at it. Most recently, uh, recently uh, Peter did a focus group on uh, March 22nd in St. Louis. And he asked Republicans and an independent-leaning Republican voters, uh, or Republican-leaning independent voters, what they thought of Donald Trump. He says he learned from them that Trump's strength and shortcomings are the same, the force of his personality. Uh, one woman in the group, uh, she's an independent, told Peter that uh, she thinks Trump comes across as a bully. A Cruz reporter said he doesn't think Trump plays well with others and he is not, as he put it, of presidential quality. Now, in Peter's focus group, eight of the 12 participants did not believe Trump will ever build a wall or deport 11 million undocumented immigrants. That's interesting. I just, uh, my wife, who is from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the most opinionated zip code in the world, 02138, <laughs> found this in the Boston Globe today. It's a mock-up of a Boston Globe front page if uh, Donald Trump is elected. Deportations to begin. Markets sink as trade war looms. New libel law targets absolute scum in press. <clears throat> Down on the bottom is an editor's note. It said, this is Donald Trump's America. What you read on this page is what might happen if the GOP frontrunner can put his ideas into practice uh, 
his words into action. Many Americans might find this vision appealing, but the Globe's editorial board finds it deeply troubling. So this is their editorial today. Now, that brings me to PolitiFact. I don't know if you know what PolitiFact is, but what it does is it measures the truthfulness of what the candidates say. PolitiFact says Donald Trump tells the truth about 3% of the time. Ted Cruz, 6% of the time. John Kasich, 25%. PolitiFact says Hillary tells the truth about 24% of the time. Bernie Sanders, 15% of the time. But in the liar, liar, pants on fire category, Donald Trump trumps all. Double digits, 19%. Now, as you know, television cannot get enough of Donald Trump. The New York Times reported recently that according to MediaQuant, MediaQuant tracks uh, media coverage of political candidates, Trump has earned close to $2 billion worth of free media coverage. Double Hillary Clinton's coverage. It is Donald Trump all the time, even when he loses. Why? You know why. He delivers numbers. Donald Trump puts eyeballs on the screen. He phones it in, they put them on. He tweets, they put the tweets on. And Donald Trump is a serial tweeter. He disappears for a couple of days, they put old Trump video on. In the latest Pew Research Center study, three quarters of all registered voters say news organizations are giving Trump too much coverage. At breakfast yesterday with some pretty politically savvy people, one of the guys asked me, where are the other 25%? Another guy at the table who has deep roots in uh, political Washington says Americans suffer from political ADD, attention deficit disorder. It's the killer for me. Leslie Moonves, the CEO of CBS, says the Trump phenomenon may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. Moonves says the money's rolling in and this is fun. Bring it on, Donald. Keep it going. Well, you have to admire his honesty. The uh, late, great gonzo journalist, Linda's a big fan of his, it's Dr. Hunter S. Thompson, <laughs> says the TV business is a cruel and shallow money trench through the heart of the journalism industry. Dr. Thompson said the TV business is a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs for no good reason. There's also a downside. I want to be fair. In 1985, cultural critic Neil Postman published a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death, Public Discourse in the Age of Show Business. Postman wrote, when a population becomes distracted by trivia, when cultural life is redefined as a perpetual round of entertainments, when serious public conversation becomes a form of baby talk, when in short a people become an audience and their public business is a vaudeville act, then, Postman said, a nation finds itself at risk. Culture death is a clear possibility. And Neil Postman wrote that in 1985. At some point, I don't have to tell you, in recent history, civility went out of our public life. Those who disagreed became the enemy to be savaged. For 25 years, as the host of and executive producer of a program called Inside Washington, I lived by the rule 
that we could disagree without being disagreeable. That's gone now from our politics, and that's very sad. Now, when I'm ever, whenever I'm in this neighborhood here, I, I love to come into this church. I love this church. And I, po I, I pause by that final pew back there. And then I come down and I take a seat. And uh, I try to let the history of this sacred space wash, wash over me. And sometimes, uh, I guess through the mystic chords of memory, I imagine I hear a voice from the back of that church. And the voice says, we're not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. Well, alas, Mr. President, I fear the better angels of our nature have fled, at least for the moment. I was in this church a couple of weeks ago, and I heard Reverend Leon say that when uh, George W. Bush spoke here, he got a lot of nasty emails from liberals. And he said, there's a sign outside that says, all welcome. And then when President Obama came to this church, uh, he got a lot of nasty calls or emails from conservatives. And he said, there's a sign out front that says, all welcome. I think that's what our politics should be, all welcome. Uh, I don't know how we change this. Um, it, it's, just, it's, it's a long, complicated process, has to do with redistricting and so forth. But at some point, the American people have to stand up and say enough. Because in the latest research, Pew Research Center poll, uh, say Republican voters, almost half of them say life has gotten worse for people like them. And if you look at the, the polling over the last 10 years, each cycle, is life going to be better for you than it was for your children? The answer is no. And you don't solve this with uh, baby talk. You don't solve it with crude talk. You don't solve it with uh, misogynistic comments about the other candidates' wives. You solve it with political action. Um, where you start? Right here. It's up to you. That's it for me. I'm finished. I, uh, look, look, I, I'm not a pundit. I never wanted to be. I, I don't have a plan to be. So uh, if you have some questions, that's fine. My answer may be, I don't know, for most of the time, but I'll try. Or I might turn the tables on you and ask you a few questions. So I have a question. Uh, based on your many years as a journalist, because I think this is fascinating to all of us who are in journalism and covering politics, you started off when they were shooting film that had to be processed. Then it went to live. Then blogging came along and live TV. But now it's social media. And I'd love to know your thoughts about how you think social media uh, has affected this very unusual campaign that we're seeing now. Well, that's a good question. We, uh, we, had, you know, we were already doing shorthand on television. I mean, years ago, when you and I started, uh, you could do 12-minute pieces. Uh, you did uh, sound bites in these uh, interviews lasted, uh, you know, a minute, minute and a half. Now it's down to about four seconds. It's all bing, 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 bing. It's, uh, it's like a video game. Well, along comes social media. Now we've got Twitter with 
you know, this many characters. Uh, so there's, there's, no, there's no time for contemplation. There's no time for analysis. There's no time for any of this. You have to shop. If you want to be well-informed, you have to shop. Well, I'll make another speech. Uh, I fear that what passes now for, uh, for news coverage, on television anyway, which is where I spent 50 years, uh, has so devalued the um, currency of our public discourse that uh, trivia passes for news. And uh, we, we have become so desensitized to that that we no longer recognize the fact. Neil Postman <coughs> began his book by talking about George Orwell and, and Huxley. Orwell wrote 1984, Huxley, Brave New World. Orwell's theory was that eventually we would live in a totalitarian society and we would be, uh, we, we, we would be repressed from the top down and we would live in a very regimented society. Huxley's theory was that no, we would trivialize ourselves to death. And uh, looks like Huxley maybe was right at this point. But again, if you want to be informed, you can, uh, you can shop around. I always go to Bloomberg News. <laughs> and and uh, I mean, there are a lot of great websites. Here's another thing that, that, that's, that's, that's a hobby horse of mine. We had something in this country called the Fairness Doctrine when I started in the business. And all that required was uh, that you pre present contrasting points of view. If you had a Rush Limbaugh on the air, somewhere in the broadcast day or in the, in the week or so in the spectrum, you had to present a, uh, I don't know, a Bill Maher or a John Stewart or somebody like that. In other words, you had to convince the FCC that you were using some balance. And uh, as a consequence, a lot of uh, television stations, uh, even some networks, did a lot of, did commentary. Remember Eric Severide and so forth? And a lot of stations did, did, um, did editorials, and of course people wanted to offer rebuttals to the editorial. I thought the Fairness Doctrine worked beautifully. Now the broadcasters didn't like it. They thought they could make a lot more money uh, if the fair, Fairness Doctrine was eliminated. It was in 1987. So that, what, what that created was niche broadcasting. You could, you could go to a place that, that uh, sang only the songs you wanted to hear in terms of, of political discourse. Uh, if, if, you were, if you were comfortable and on the right side of the spectrum, you could go there. Not so much on the left side. They're, they're kind of hard to find. Uh, for some reason, the, the, the lefties don't make money the way the people on the right do. But I'm not, I'm not criticizing the, the fact that we have people with strong opinions on the right side of the spectrum. Again, I respect all that. But uh, what, it, what it does is it, it, sends, it, it tends to reinforce where we're comfortable. And I think we need to be uncomfortable in our public discourse. Uh, I, you know, it's up to us journalists to, uh, to uh, you know, afflict the uh, comfortable. But, uh, but, but our, jo our job is to try to be open to everything and see if we can open our minds and our hearts and maybe see the other guy's point of view. There was a time in this country when I started when that worked. Worked pretty well. I had, uh, I, I learned how to cover government when I was, my very first job was in my hometown of Worcester, Massachusetts, and I, I covered the city council, and I loved it. I was a, a very odd child, because on the way home from high school, I used to sit at the city council meetings, and uh, I, I had two heroes. One hero was a guy named Israel Katz, Izzy Katz. He was a Democrat, and uh, the, the, no legislation went through the city council that Izzy didn't know backwards, forwards, 
And uh, he would say things like, uh, what's good for General Motors is good for America. What's good for Worcester is good for Izzy Katz. I vote yes. My, my counterpoint to that was a guy named Gustav Kuntz, who's a Republican. He was born in Austria, and his parents got him out of there in the 30s, and they sent him, um, they sent him to live with relatives in Worcester. Uh, he went to Clark University, and uh, then he enlisted in the Army during World War II, and he ended up as a counterintelligence officer on General Patton's staff. And I, uh, I asked him about Patton one time, and he said he was, uh, he was insane. <laughs> and he was a wicious anti-Semite, but he was a great fighting general. And I, uh, and I, one time I said to him, Gus, could it happen here? He said, tomorrow. It could happen here tomorrow. And when fascism comes to America, it will, it will be called anti-fascism. Uh, that's the kind of politics I like. Those guys uh, knew how to get things done. And, uh, you know, they, they were able to stretch their minds. All of this is, I, I don't blame it all on the absence of the fairness doctrine, but I, I blame a big chunk of it on that. Here's a long answer to a simple question. <laughs> Thank you for being here today, and thank you for your comments. I'm struck that in this campaign, not only is there a fragmentation of the media, but when there's near unanimity, when you have commentators on the right and the left making the kind of criticisms and observations that you've made, and yet large segments of the voting public don't care, or they dismiss it as, quote, the establishment. That's new to me as well. I'm not quite your age, I'm but I'm not a young kid. I'm oh, I was saying, how do, you, how do you explain the rejection of voters to even thoughtful critics from the right and the left of many of these, common, of many of these candidates when their commentary is dismissed as simply mouthing, quote, the establishment? Whether you're coming from the right or the left, if you're critical of these uh, new candidates, that you're somehow to be ignored when most of us in this room, I think, really did pay attention to those commentaries and use that to help frame our thinking. You're not getting, you're not getting enough candid analysis, is that? Oh, I think we're getting candid analysis. I just think a lot of voters are dismissing it out of hand if it doesn't fit their worldview of insurgent candidates. I'm, I'm not sure. Oh, well, that's been, a, that's been the case for a long time. Uh, we're at the lowest, according to Gallup, we're at the lowest point we've ever been in terms of uh, public confidence in what we do. But all of our institutions are in trouble, including you know, the church, uh, certainly Congress. I think they're at about 18% now, approval rate. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of that is, uh, has to do with... Uh, political sales pitches. I remember I was coming across the Memorial Bridge uh, in a news car and Spiro Agnew was on the air and he started talking about nattering nabobs of negativism, words that were put into his mouth by Bill Sapphire. And I said, I wonder if this is the beginning of a trend. <laughs> and, and it was. You know, so it, 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 over, over time, as you can't believe, I, I told you about the signs in New Hampshire, don't believe liberal media. Well, if you convince enough, enough people that people who make their living by doing this and really love doing it, as I did, uh, are, you know, have, have an axe to grind, you can, sell the, you can sell people anything, anything at all. 
Uh, it was a point that Hermann Goering made at the Nuremberg trials. I'm not comparing anybody to the Nazis, <laughs> but it was a point he made at the Nuremberg trials, and I think it's still a valid point. And if, uh, you know, I, I don't know how we get past that. <laughs> Good morning. Thank you for your thoughtful comments. It's really nice to have you here. So, I'm to get closer to you so I can hear you. Okay. How, is that better? Um, it's really nice to have you here, Thank and I appreciate you. your thoughtful comments. So it seems like media has gotten dumber, or maybe the American public has gotten dumber. So is it journalism's fault? Is it TV's fault? Or is it our fault? Are we demanding dumber media, or has dumber media decided that they want to feed us dumber stuff? I don't know if dumb is the right word. Part of this is economic. There, you know, all, the liberal media is controlled by a vast number of corp corporations uh, who are responsible to their shareholders. And so in, in order to improve the bottom line, you cut back, you cut back, you cut back. Newspapers have had to do it. So you have people with uh, vast institutional memory leaving. They take the buyouts. And you're stuck with people who are relatively new to the job. You have people on the campaign trail now uh, who are essentially not much more than interns, and they're out there doing an analysis and uh, you know reporting on on uh, on campaigns, and they do, they don't really have a deep well of experience, and I think that it affects the bottom line. In the old days, and Linda will remember this, uh, you would go up to the Wayfarer <laughs> at the end of the day. And you would stand there with people like Jack Germont and Dave Nyhan of the Boston Globe and uh, Marty Nolan of the Globe and a whole bunch of people who have been doing this for years and years and years, and you'd begin to hammer this thing out. Is he telling the truth about that? Where do you think this is going to go? And all of that was reflected in the news coverage, and you had people on the television side who were, you know, some of the old-timers who, who were doing the same thing. If you, you, if you, you want to see how bad it's become, and I hate to sound negative here, <clears throat> you go down to the museum, and dig out one of Walter Cronkite's broadcasts from the 70s, say, and take a look at that. It's all news, and it's only 30 minutes or less. Well, you watch, you watch these network newscasts. Now, first of all, most people watch local news for the weather. That's why you have weather every 45 seconds, okay? That's why they watch it. It makes money. But are you watching the networks? They do a lot of weather on the networks and maybe some hard news for five to six to seven minutes, and then it's bubblegum until the end of the broadcast. So, uh, you know, I watch Judy and Gwen. I like the news hour. And, uh, and then I bounce around on the cables. As I said before, you have to shop around. So I'm not sure dumb is the word. I do think it's, uh, I, I think it's more like a, a lack of, uh, of in-depth uh, institutional memory, in a sense. Does that help? I'm going to come to you because I'm deaf as Hogan's goat. Excuse me. Uh, a comment and a question. Okay. Uh, the comment, we miss uh, inside Washington. Me too. <laughs> and the question is, uh, given your longtime experience here in Washington, D.C., and covering the Hill and all the rest. Is there a time at which you think this incivility in politics started? I mean, it, our focus is always on Washington, when you read the paper, et cetera. And so that's, that's where we focus on it. 
Um, but do you have any idea or your own thoughts about when it started? Purely my thoughts. Two things, the Bork hearings on the Supreme Court and the arrival of Newt Gingrich yep. in the House. I agree. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad I could accommodate you. <laughs> uh, you had a question? Hi. Yeah. I second Mike's thoughts, Mike B. Crab's thoughts. When I was eight, seven or eight, I started watching Inside Washington, and it was a much more diplomatic show than the McLaughlin group. Um, Thank you for saying that. You're welcome. And you actually let people finish their thoughts. My question is, why did you let such a such a stapled program go? And in my luck, God was talking to me on the la on the day that the last Inside Washington program was airing. So I thank you, God. But Willie, your show was the last real um, tangibly good, decent show around. So you want to know why I let it go, right? Maybe it's not your fault. I'm no, not. No, no, no. I'm. I'm not. I'm not blaming no, 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 you. No, no, no. No, a for your way. I mean, let my me, gosh, me, I, I don't okay. want to blame you no, on no, a no, Sunday no, morning. No. No, it was my decision. We had been doing it. We had been doing it for 25 years. Okay. okay? Uh, when I when I first took it over after Martin Agronsky, uh, there was a guy named Curtis Wilkie, worked for the Boston Globe. And he's a very funny guy. And I said, I'm doing... He said, I hear you're taking over the night of the living dead. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, we're, we're going to have to change this. And over time, we did. And, uh, <clears throat> but I thought 25 years was a good point. And none of us were getting any younger. And I thought the best time to leave the dance is when the music is still playing. I would have had to start replacing panelists, and they were all my friends. Yeah. And I would have had to get, get deeply involved in social media. And uh, I, I wasn't particularly interested in that. So I thought, well, 25 years is the perfect time. And it turns out the place where I was producing the program changed hands, and that would have been another crisis. I would have had to move another. Per so I did, I'll, I'll do it quarter of a century, say thank you very much to everybody, and say goodbye. That's why I did it. Okay, well, thanks. It was a great show. The boss. <laughs> So, Bill, I've, I've, uh, in conversation with you, I'm never quite sure whether you're a former Roman Catholic a, um, or dyed-in-the-wool Roman Catholic. So my question is shifting from uh, news coverage and politics. Uh, do you think the Pope is an Episcopalian deep down deep? <laughs> I think deep down he's a compassionate man, <clears throat> but I think deep down he's a Roman Catholic, and he's an establishment pope, and he's trying to alleviate uh, that pretty rigid uh, system in which he founds himself with uh, compassionate statements. It's very interesting in this last document that he released, there was no mention whatsoever of contraception. And the hint to me is, look, we, we know what you guys are doing, okay? <laughs> 
Okay, let's not make a big deal out of it. That's the sense I got. But there are some things in which they're always going to draw the line. Abortion would be one of them. So in my case, uh, collapsing Catholic might be better. <laughs> Cultural Catholic, something like that. Uh, I found it, let me be very honest with you, the uh, clerical abuse scandal, and I did, I've done quite a bit of reporting on that, broke something in me. Uh, my wife said it liberated us. Maybe that's the word. I don't know. But I'm finding it very hard to take a lot of this stuff seriously after that. That's the honest answer. Let me come around. This works pretty good, and it's good exercise, too. First of all, thank you for being here. Um, as a lifelong Washingtonian, I followed a good part of your career being very young all the way to now, so thank you for all the work you've done. I want to go back to the question about the newspaper. And you said that we cannot let the print newspaper go. Um, we are living in a generation, though, particularly with our younger generation, that when you make reference or ask them, I've read something, for example, in the Washington Post, they, they haven't read it. It's old news, as you said. How, how can we defend keeping institutions like this going when the younger generation is not able to buy into it or is not interested in it, even though that someone like yourself or myself see a lot of benefits still in it? And, and how are they going to last another 10 years or beyond? Well, it doesn't have to be on paper. I mean, you can read the, I, I read the New York Times online, I read the Washington Post online every day. It doesn't have to be on paper. Uh, but we have to keep the thing going. We ha other, who's going to watch City Hall if we don't do that? Uh, I mean, the, 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 the money that's flowing through the system now in terms of, Jane Mayer has written a book called Dark Money. Don't read it before you go to sleep at night. It'll keep you awake. <laughs> But uh, that kind of reporting alone, if we lose that, we could, we could, we could lose who we are as a people. Uh, so I think, uh, I think ultimately it's, it's going to settle down. There's, there's going to be a way for people. One of the problems, I think, was they, they were giving news away on the Internet for free at the beginning, and people got used to that. And now the idea of paying for it is sometimes uh, unpalatable. Uh, but I'm willing to pay for it. And, uh, you know, it, it, over time, it, it, if you take a look at the changes in the, in the uh, Washington Post in, in recent weeks, I think you see that they're, they're coming to grips with the, uh, with, with, with the future, if not the present. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Dave Kindred, who was a sports writer for the Post, uh, wrote a book called Morning Miracle. And he described a meeting down, I think it was the Y Plantation, it was like a retreat for the Washington Post people. And Steve Call, who was then at the Washington Post, had done a study of where we had to go with the internet, where the Post had to go with the internet. And, um, and he laid out this big, sophisticated plan. And, and according to Dave Kindred, Don Graham, who's a wonderful guy, and I like him very much, said, that's all interesting, that's very interesting, Steve, but what about Prince William County? You know, he was talking about one thing, and Steve Call was talking about something much broader. And I think when you, if you look at the emergence of Politico and, uh, and websites of that nature and Bloomberg News, you begin to see that we can do it. It's just we're doing it a different way. It's, it's a, we're going through a tremendous uh, a period of readjustment. Uh, some people, are, uh, some people uh, say it's analogous to the industrial age. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far, but it's, uh, it's just... You know, we're going to do it differently. Change is good. Change is not necessarily a bad thing. 
I see a man down here with his hand up. Thank you for the talk and a quick question. Uh, looking ahead to the winter of 2018, um, will you decide whether you'll run or not in 2020 if Kanye West runs after all? What, what was your question? Looking ahead to the winter of 2018, you were saying you might consider running in 2020. Will they, you know, if Kanye West runs after all, will that impact your decision? I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't I'm get sorry, that. I talked to you. I said if Kanye West runs for president, will that affect your decision to run in 2020? Oh, okay, all right, thanks. <laughs> Appreciate that.